Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Just me this morning, Aaron is still out and about traveling. Um, very excited this morning. You know, Aaron and I. I've talked a lot, not so much always on the show, but a lot off the scenes um, about what's going on with so many of the companies that that will come on or the topics that we talk about, um, you know, have an open source component to them. And, you know, the, the, the off the scene, off the record conversation is always, you know, hey, how much money do you think they're making? We're seeing how many stars are showing up on GitHub and how many downloads they talk about. But are they making any money? How's their ecosystem making any money? And so this morning we're we're very very excited. Uh, there's some there's been some things going on uh, out in the community that we want to talk about, and excited to have back on uh, Adrian Cockcroft, uh, old time friend of the show, and uh, glad to have you back on the show to talk about some of this. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah. Um, so it's been a while since you've been on. Um, you're you're always traveling. You're always kind of keeping up with what's with what's going on. What are you uh, besides you know what we're going to talk about from open source? What are you into these days? What are your Topics for talks and topics for little side projects you're working on. Well, today I'm at uh, QCon New York, um, actually giving a talk later today, um, and it's called Microservices State of the Union. I'm not sure that was a particularly great title for what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to give my latest update on what's going on in the microservices space, some of the problems and solutions I see, and um, getting more into uh, serverless or jeff as you've been calling it yeah <laughs> yeah um and you were at the you were at the serverless conference uh, a few weeks ago i wasn't actually there i just felt i was busy somewhere else but I, I was following it with interest i think there's a lot going on there right now yeah and it's kind of the it's the thing that's currently disrupting the uh tool chain and the assumptions and a lot of the bits and pieces that people do you know the way people do things yeah um so it's always interesting if something comes along that um you say well install your monitoring agent here um, and get one minute updates well that's not going to work right right the machine only exists for half a second at a time yeah so monitoring's an interesting problem uh, debugging the tooling for getting things going um and some of the abstractions that for portability. And I think people are having interesting times going, hey, we would like to have this in our data center. And then there's a whole stack of interesting problems where you discover probably just how much work AWS put into Lambda to get it to work efficiently. Right, right. Absolutely. So so we will, uh, once once we get the, the, the Jeff cast or whatever that, that uh, other show gets named, we'll have to have you back to, to dig into some of that. Um, so your company, uh, Battery Ventures, hosted an event a couple of weeks ago um, called the Battery Ventures Open Source Summit. Um, what what was the event? What was the reason for the event? And, and what were some of the sort of high-level things that came out of it? I think the reason we did this was that just looking across the portfolio and looking at new companies, pretty much there's two ways to market nowadays. Um, you used to be able to build on-premise software and sell it as a product. Nowadays, you either sell it as SaaS, so as a service, or you're selling it as an open source and it's kind of become take table stakes. Really, the default way you will get your software adopted is by being an open source project. And we just saw that yesterday. Um, Chef came out with its new Habitat, 
to application management software layer and they've written it all in Rust and they've put it out there and it's all open source to start with on day one. Right. So that's become default. So given that you start with it has to be open source, otherwise, um, yeah, I was having, I had dinner last night with a, the managed, you know, some of the CIO and some of his team from one of the big Wall Street banks and they were saying, oh yeah, we never looked at that because it wasn't open source. Right. It's become, if you want it to be considered at all in somebody's architecture, you have to be an open source base just to get going at all. Right. So, that, so that's the environment we're in. So given that, how can you build a company on top of that as, a, as an assumption? And that's really what, what Battery Ventures and other VC firms are looking at. How do you put together a business plan that takes into account ecosystem building, and things like that, and go to market. You can kind of look at open source as outsourcing some of your engineering to the ecosystem. Like, um, I think Docker said that only 30% of their commits came from Docker employees. Right. So that pull request, something like that. So they've got a substantial <clears throat> external contribution. Then you also you're outsourcing your marketing, your go-to-market, your discovery by making something go viral. You don't have to have a, spend a lot of money on marketing. So if you get those two things right... Your, your you know, investment and your outbound are low, so you can get going pretty quickly. But you still have to make money somewhere to pay. There's still somebody that needs paying, and you need to build some value so that you know, the VC firms will give you money in expectation of having an exit of some kind. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because you know, the, the timing of it was sort of interesting. I know um, the week before, uh, James Governor over at Red Monk had written that he had sat down with some folks from from Excel Partners, having a maybe not as big a conference, but but sort of a similar get together, and it may have just been a you know coffee and breakfast sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I know we've had a few people from from various VC firms have sort of reached out to us offline, and it, it feels like a lot of the the firms. You know, I, I sat through, I was listening to one of the A16Z podcasts, and Martin uh, uh, Martin Casada was talking about this in the in the infrastructure space. I mean, it feels like. A lot of the VC firms are sort of now going, okay, we, we get how the market dynamics work for, for open source software companies, but we don't necessarily, we still don't totally get how they're making money out of that, which is the interesting part to me, I think. Um, and maybe that's not why these all are happening at the same time, but it coincidentally, they're all sort of talking about it. And I haven't heard anybody other than the SaaS model say, hey, here's here's even a few, ex- you know, like essentially, you know, who, who's the Netflix of, of OSS software that isn't SaaS, I guess seems to be what they're all sort yeah. of looking for. So there's a few ways for going to market. And what we did at the summit is we got people who knew how to do this or had done this in the past, put them on panel sessions, got them to discuss things. Mm-hmm. We had Martin Mikos, who sold MySQL for a billion dollars. Yep. So that's a good way of doing an exit. Um, build something that is basically enough of a threat that people want to buy it. Um, we had the we had a, there was the president of Red Hat at one point, although he's no longer at Red Hat. We right. had um, we had the CFO of Chef, I think, or Cloudera. We had people people from the, some of the large projects talking about how they had approached go to market. The key thing I think is that if you take say there's an existing market for software that's yeah, a few billion dollars. What happens when you replace that market with an open source version of the market? It's no longer a few billion dollars revenue market. It's a fraction of that. So maybe a tenth or you know ten, twenty, thirty percent of the total market size shrinks. Right. Right. 
that's even though there's much many more people using the product because they're using the product for you know one tenth or one hundredth of the cost on average of what they used to pay for on-prem software from one of the big enterprise vendors. So your your cost base as an end user drops drastically. Right. So sort of classic Clayton Christensen disrupt from yeah, the bottom thing. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's a disruption from the bottom, and then you've got several entrants because it's the cost. The cost of adoption is so low, you end up with several entrants. So instead of sort of one dominant player, you now have lots of small players, each with a, a proportion of a much smaller pie, even though the actual use of the product may be many times bigger. So you're playing off between the sort of disruption part of the market and also what's called Jevons paradox, which says if you make something cheaper, you'll get more use of it. Right. Right. But because it's so much cheaper, the the extra use of it has to be at a far higher level to sort of get you back up to being more dollars. But there's more value in the market because the product is used by a lot of people. Yeah. What you know, Martin, the the MySQL story is is pretty well known. I mean, obviously that went after the low end of a you know a SQL database. People could argue it was sort of the low end of, of an Oracle database. Um, why do you think we don't see more people going after an open source sort of SAP, you know, sort of a, an ERP system, an open source, um, I don't know, thing. I mean, we, we've seen people try and go after things like Word and, and so forth. You know, they're going after the Kubernetes and the Dockers and all these sort of new things which aren't really a replacement for anything. They're just sort of the new stuff, right? They, there's no... There, there's no revenue there they're necessarily replacing. Is that just, I mean, I know there's a certain amount of, hey, it's new and cool and the old stuff is boring, so why would I want to do it in open source? But doesn't that sort of not follow the model that says, hey, you've got to go after the low end of something that, that had an existing market? You know, like Docker isn't really going after VMware per se, um, even though people would argue that. It's, it's almost going after sort of chef and puppet if, you know, it's more of a packaging exercise than it is a you know, a, a VMware type of thing. But why, why do you think you, you don't see people going after the stuff that, that has a lot of money in the market? They're going after just sort of what's new. I think people are going after that part of the market, but they're generally doing it as SaaS. Yeah. A lot of the cost and complexity of running something like SAP is the configuration and running it and installing it and upgrading it. And you're seeing SaaS companies like Workday uh, taking over some parts of that market and companies like Infor, it's so info interesting because what they're doing is they're buying on-prem software that has companies that have existing installed bases like Lawson, and then they're building SaaS versions of that and c- converting the user bases over. So they have a that's their cloud strategy, and they're doing reasonably well at that. Right. You're also seeing companies like Oracle. So Oracle, I see what they're trying to do is they're trying to become Salesforce. They're trying to convert over their internal products that they've built like PeopleSoft, whatever, that all of the product, vertical products they built into SaaS products. So that's a, a whole section of the market where you can make money because there's your, your business model shifts from up front to paying as you go, and there's probably less money in it overall, but it's more sustainable, I think. And, and what I'm seeing in some places is you're seeing companies like, you know, say Weave, Weaveworks, who had started off building sort of free plugins for Docker, and when they're monetizing it, they're looking at trying to build, you know, SaaS products on the side or Cluster HQ. Similarly, um, mm-hmm. people in the Docker ecosystem trying to figure out how to add SaaS products 
and and things that they can add around the site to get some revenue, recurring revenue, rather than you know having sort of created a category to some extent with their plugins. Right. Right. Do, do, do you find what, what's interesting is a lot of those those and those are good examples. So the people that are doing that want to then become a SaaS. Do you find they have any experience in, in running a SaaS? Because you now go from, you know, a bunch of people who are former <clears throat> Microsoft, VMware, whoever they came from, packaged software companies that, you know, their model was all the money goes into R&D and then the, the distribution of the product is essentially free. You know, it used to be a penny because it was a CD, but now it's essentially free. Now you've got to figure out, a, you know, how do I efficiently run something um, for a bunch of people that have never run a SaaS business before? Um, I mean, do you, do you see them hiring a bunch of SaaS operations people that, that know how to do it really efficiently so their software cost is low? Or is that an area they're kind of getting into out of necessity but don't necessarily have the expertise to do it i don't think it's that hard the patterns for running a SaaS business it's not too difficult i don't see that as a barrier lots of people have stood up SaaS versions of products without any great difficulty certainly as you start off if you start scaling to huge numbers of customers obviously you've got to sort of pull in a few people right. i mean to some extent uh, when i joined I was at eBay and I'd figured out some scalability things. When I joined Netflix, I was joining to provide some of that scalability for how to run large-scale services that I'd learned. Yeah. Um, through, so that you know you can you can find people, but generally that's only needed when you get large-scale going. Okay. You know, I, I saw uh, one tweet that came out that said, you know, one, one of the big themes this week was uh, at the event was you know we need an OSS license that prevents OS uh, AWS for making money off of our OSS code. Um, and, and AWS could be anybody in this case. It could be Azure. It could be Google. Um, I mean, was that a sort of a distinct concern from a lot of the, um, the you know, the OSS project people that were there that, that Amazon just lets the ecosystem build things and then they eventually go, well, that's great. We'll offer it as a service. And so they don't really have a, a way of, <laughs> of being successful. I mean, was that a big concern for them? I think it was more general than that. They weren't really picking on AWS. Sure. They were basically pointing out that if you take an open source project, or well, basically all the SaaS services are built out of lots of open source projects, right. Right. and that ultimately the SaaS providers who've done best have made more money than the open source projects that they are building on top of. Right. And you can self-support a lot of that if you're a large um, you know, SaaS provider. So now Netflix is built on a lot of open source, and right. Netflix has made a lot of money out of it. Um, AWS was an example. It wasn't that AWS needed different licenses to do that. What we're seeing, though, is that if you want broad adoption, you typically are going for Apache license. That's the lowest friction license because people are comfortable that they could fork it, but they'd only need to fork it if the project went in a direction that wasn't supporting what they wanted to do. Right. So that's the one that most people want. And you know, if you wanted a license that really prevents people from running your product as a SaaS offering, then AGPL is probably the closest to that. And we're seeing a few people running, you know, picking AGPL. Right. AGPL. That AGPL to me signals that you didn't really want to open source it in the first place. It's sort of like a. I got the open source badge on my product, but it's all you can really do with that is read the source code. You can't really contribute back right. in a very meaningful way. And 
it's, uh, it adds friction. There are a lot of people that won't touch anything that is a GPL, except as um, you know, a sort of it's a they're treating it more as just a binary that they're dealing with. They're not contributing to it. So yeah. people don't generally tr- they treat AGPL things like I think um, MongoDB is AGPL and you and things that are GPL or AGPL they kind of treat it as just a black box. You don't necessarily set up a team to help contribute fixes and make it into a better product. Whereas something like Cassandra, the way Netflix approached it was how do we make this into the product we need it to be? We ended up having some committers on staff for a while and. You know, worked with the data stacks and the rest of the committers to build Cassandra to be what we needed it to be. So that's an Apache contribution model um, that works very well. And a lot of people are, are doing that, right? Yeah. They're, they're taking what they need and they're adding to it. But I want to go back to one thing, which is if you, th- there's one clear model for taking an open source project and making it into something that you can sell. And that is to add basically LDAP integration roles, all that role-based management stuff, so that you can hook it up to Active Directory. And if if you're trying to sell something into a large enterprise, those enterprises are, they are having highly audited, highly controlled, role-based operations. And if if you're going to plug something into that infrastructure, you need the interfaces that say this person in this role is allowed to do this to this piece of infrastructure or use these tools. So that is a something that is really only applies if, you, if you're building out in that environment. And that's why you see products like Docker Data Center. Mm-hmm. Right? That's Docker with an LDAP integration and some high availability and the security scanning. It's all the things that the enterprises wanted wrapped around Docker to make it plug into what they want to do. And then, you know, they will pay for that. Right. They are used to paying for things that plug into their systems. Um, and you can kind of look at uh, the difference between a startup and an enterprise functionally is whether they run everything off of Active Directory or not. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, right. no. So kind of going back to the, you know, the idea of, of projects, you know, getting picked up by uh, the, the loud, large cloud providers or SaaS providers, you know, as a as a VC community, maybe not necessarily you know battery in particular, but like, how do you guys look at that then in terms of you know the pace at which you you push your your investment companies or um, you, you know, I mean it's it's a tricky thing because there's not as much of an IPO market any anymore. Um, a lot of companies who used to be big acquirers don't necessarily know what to do with with open source software. Um, you know, how do how do you guys look at that in terms of saying you know, I, I guess, you know, essentially the, the project can become a commodity much faster than, than used to in the past. Or, how, you know, how do we as VCs monetize that? Yeah, there's a um, there's kind of a, a problem here that if the project is too successful and is too easy to use, you don't really need support for it. Yeah. Right. And so you see things like, you know, tools like Elastic, right, which have they're doing reasonably well as a company, but their actual usage rate is far higher than the, their monetized usage rate. Right. Um, but they're, they're one of the more successful companies in this space, and they are doing very well. Um, and Chef is another example where they're doing pretty well. They're helping people get through the DevOps transition and building tools for that, even though they're an you know, open source company. So there are definitely ways of doing this, and there are ways of getting value. What 
But if you look sort of historically, you know, five, ten years ago, you could invest in a software company that might have a multi-billion dollar exit around a proprietary market selling into enterprise just because the enterprise market is so big. Nowadays, if you want to get a similar multiple, you probably need to get in earlier at a, at a lower price, and then you'll be doing a smaller exit, right? So if you want to, you have to get in a little bit earlier into the market, and there'll be the company is not the uh, the ultimate trajectory of a lot of these companies as they're going to be smaller companies than some of the uh, deals that we could have done if, you know 10 years ago for example right now when when you say you know doing well really well what what does that mean uh, i mean just just ballpark wise is you know is a hundred million dollars you know doing really well these days or or maybe what 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 metrics do you guys look at is it revenue per for headcount, or what? What are you looking at for those things? Yeah, there's there's an annual recurring revenue ARR, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we call it. Um, you typically, if you're starting out, you're a, you're a, you know for, you start off with no revenue, and you're sure. just trying to get adoption. And at some point, you figure out how to monetize it, and and it starts to get interesting once you get to sort of roughly you know a million or dollars or sort of ARR is sort of where and, and you've got a repeatable sales model. You've figured out how to get repeat sales, how to you know, train up a sales rep. Every time you add a sales rep, they go and they add more sales and you don't have to keep customizing things. So that's the repeatable sales model, which typically kicks in somewhere in that sort of you know, million-dollar kind of range. That's, those are sort of you know, eyeball-like yeah. you know, right. things that would get some attention. And then they'll dig into the actual details you know, of exactly what you're doing. And then the growth rate. I mean, for things that are working towards that, you, all you can really go off is stars on GitHub, um, traction in the industry, things like that. So if you're looking earlier, but there's a, there's a certain point at which you've figured out you've got a repeatable sales model, you've got some traction, you've got something you can build on. And then you get to the, the larger companies with you know, tens to you know, 100 million kind of range. Those are late stage companies, um, people like Atlassian, um, who aren't really open source, but they're sort of large software companies. Right. So they're more services-based and on-prem. So there, there's a few places where you can see companies that have made it into the, I guess you call them the software unicorn or whatever you want to call okay. them. There's sort of, when, once you can sort of look at, squint at it and say, yeah, you could get to a billion valuation on that, those are the growth stage companies that are, you're investing in a, a usually a dominant position in the market rather than, uh, hey, I think this is a cool idea and it seems to get some traction. Right. Now, I, I noticed on the agenda there was there was several uh, you know large companies, a couple of them happen to be banks, who were <clears throat> talking about their open source projects. Um, you know, Capital One was on there and, and Goldman. And do we see, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of the open source projects tend to be um, staffed, uh, staffed, you know, sort of, um, the, the head count, the people working on them tend to come from large vendors. Um, you know, whether it's Google or Intel or Red Hat or, or whoever, uh, obviously there's lots of contributions from other individuals. Are you, did, did it come out of the event that you, people, that there's significant contribution from sort of the end user community, um, you know, into the core parts of projects, or is it mostly fringe parts of projects or, you know, are these, really a lot of sort of uh, activities just to sell, sort of help them go, hey, we, we, we know 
like you said, these technologies are being used. We need to hire people. So we've got to be visible so we can hire people so that you, you, know, you can find people that are interested in, in working on those technologies. What's, wh- where, what is the state of sort of end user contributions, at least from what you heard? I think there's a couple of different areas here. One is vertical market things. For example, in banking, there's a lot of uh, software in banking that is just repeated across lots and lots of different finance companies. And some of them have got together and they're creating consortiums where they just start sharing software. And so that some of what, what Goldman are focusing on is largely that area. I mean, they consume open source and they help, you know, they contribute to projects. But what one of the things they're doing is setting up consortiums to go build out very specific stuff to do with trading and finance and they're building open interfaces for interbank communications, right? So they want to open source the way that works rather than going through some, you know, provider that wants to sort of effectively tax every transaction. So that's one aspect of it. What I'm seeing on Capital One is that they're a little bit more like Netflix. They're just finding gaps and things they needed to build and they're putting those out as open source projects partly because they're trying to hire better people and be seen as leaders in this space. So they want to hire the, the people who've developed open, large open source projects, right? You, you do that by having, showing you have people like that. And then there's sort of, there's kind of a flocking instinct, right? So you can get to hire some of the best right. people in the industry if you show that you actually already have a few people who are able to sort of freely contribute and go to conferences and talk about it. And they built a DevOps dashboard. I think they said they have... I think they have three or four projects out now and uh, there's several more in the pipeline that they're developing but they're more like an aws or um, devops infrastructure projects filling gaps right. if you look at um, what happened at what they're talking about at qcon new york uh, netflix are talking about a customization of mesos running on aws which is targeting something that that the other uh, container schedules aren't targeting They wanted very large scale, and they wanted very tight integration into AWS, whereas Kubernetes doesn't integrate tightly into AWS. It sort of replicates things, and it's more oriented towards what you'd want to run in data center because it sort of has its built-in auto-scaling and um, kind of it's managing the containers in a way that duplicates features that AWS also has, right? So if you run it on top of AWS, you've got double copies of things that right. aren't really integrated. So what they've done is build a, a Mesos scheduler that integrates very tightly into the AWS networking and whatever. Yep. And, yep. and you could argue that's what ECS should be, the, the Amazon EC2 container service, and they're working with ECS to figure out how to make ECS work more like what they've built. Right. But again, you know, there's a, there's a particular need. They've got the skills to do it, and they go and build something that fills the gap, and that's what I see Capital One doing yeah. particularly. Yeah, it makes sense. You take their, take their vertical industry knowledge and, and sort of apply it there. So I want to be conscious of your time. I know you're, you're at the event. You're going to go to the keynote. What were, the, what were sort of you know, major takeaways from, from the conference? You know, what did you walk away with, two or three thoughts in terms of either stuff that you didn't expect or kind of you know, reaffirming what you, what you thought you knew? It's a, it's a very good conference, very nicely run. Um, they're putting a lot of thought into how they run the conference. Um, so it's just, you know, if, if you go to go to a QCon, um, you know, the team that built QCon really care a lot about the the 
the experience you have at the event. So I really recommend people to go to them. I think the what you see at the event is a lot of maturity of microservices, people talking about how they built it, problems they found, and how they're getting through those problems. So it's not just sort of an architectural idea now. It's, okay, yeah, we're doing this, and, the, and we're building it out. Um, containers are just sort of what people are building it out of. I think you're seeing some emerging use of serverless. It's not quite um, come up as a, it's not on the agenda that much, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, I think, going to be kind of the next thing that people are talking about as they dive into it. And then um, a good focus on the people issues, you know, culture issues. It turns out that as you're trying to move to continuous delivery and the microservices thing, there's sort of a linkage back into the company organization via Conway's law that says that your company structure dictates how you're going to build the structure of your software. So fix the company structure first, then your the software gets easier to build. But fixing the company structure is a people problem and a senior management problem. Right. 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 So I spend a, quite a lot of time talking to executives about how they need to organize things so that they can be successful when they're building out their microservices and you know software architecture effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And are you seeing are you seeing patterns emerge there, or is it still are we still in sort of phase one of of people figuring that out? I think people are starting from different points. I mean, Netflix, to start with, had a very microservices-friendly, you know, it was a very cellular-based organization with groups with a lot of responsibility. And you're seeing people that, that find that easy to set up, like Uber, have a similar architecture, um, lots of local autonomy in what they do. And we've had a couple of speakers from Uber here talking about their architecture. There's a lot of people that are in that state and there are a lot of people that are very siloed organizations who are struggling to make the transition. And there's a few people that have gone through that transition or are creating subgroups um, that are more cellular organizations. So it kind of depends where, the, where you started. And that's one of the differences between some of the sort of bureaucratic uh, enterprise and government com- groups and organizations versus the web scale organizations. That's probably the biggest difference. And just starting to see people you know, realize that if they want to go that fast, they have to set up company structures which let uh, a lot of local autonomy happen. And then you're building frameworks around that that let you do that safely while you're going fast. And that's, yep. the, that's kind of the way that the culture and microservices and DevOps and you know, all continuous delivery, these things all tie together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, thank you again, as always, for, for being on the show. And I want to appreciate your time. Thank you for the insight into what went on at the, uh, at the Battery Ventures event. And uh, so for Aaron and for Adrian, folks, I uh, want to thank you for, uh, for listening. And we will uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.